Hey, Element, guess what? I actually have some good news for you. We got some more booklets. Uh, last week, we ran out of our first production run of every single one, and we got some more. And so if you need a book, please don't hesitate to get a hold of us. Connect at ourelement.org, and we will make sure we get one to you. You can swing by here and pick one up. If you're not in our local area, we will even mail one to you. So that's good news. Uh, as people ask some questions this week about Job and their own life and some fears that they have, I think what we need to understand is when you look throughout the Bible, you're going to see some things like God burns a bush for Moses. He does special things for this guy named Gideon. Uh, King David slays Goliath. Uh, you have the Apostle Paul gets taken up into the third heaven. What we have to understand is these are extraordinary events and that we're not Moses and we're not Gideon and we're not the Apostle Paul. And in the end, we're also not Job. So you don't have to walk through your life fearing that this same thing may happen to you in your life. Uh, again, extraordinary circumstances. So just thank God. Hey, I'm, I'm glad I'm not that guy. And again, I don't know what you have given up, uh, but I have given up sugar, like I said, and I just feel like I want to strangle myself right now because I'm having such a hard time not having sugar. But hey, you know, I want to love and follow Jesus. And all those times I'm looking at what he has said and what he has done. And so it's helping me to remember who he is and pray a little bit more to him in the midst of that. Uh, don't forget, today in the middle of the message, we're going to put up a slide. That slide's going to have a question on it. And that question is going to give you a chance to take care of your kids, uh, get some coffee, uh, be able to have you pause that and answer that question with other people who are in the room to maybe just take a step out of the message before we go into the rest of it. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on more and then events in Uversion, and we should come up by GPS if you're in our local area. If you are not in our local area, just type in the zip code 93455, and we will come up that way, and you will get uh, uh, verses and announcements, but you won't get sermon notes because sermon notes are all... Uh, in the booklets. Uh, if you don't have a booklet and you would like one right now, you can go to our website, ourelement.org, and download a PDF of that so you can actually have that. But my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. If you're so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. And this is Job chapter 4, verse 6. And it says this, Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Now, that's actually not true, but We'll get to there in just a moment. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for being such a gracious and good God to us. We ask that you would teach us and draw us to yourself, that we would understand who you are calling us to be, and that we would live out in this world as your hands and feet, no matter what we go through, no matter what comes into our lives, that you would be glorified and we would live in that joy that you bring because you are good. Amen. All right, so we are actually in this third week of the book of Job. Uh, Job, we are calling our Lent-like journey, or Element's own version of it anyway. And it's a time to reflect on the goodness of God, and really, in the end, who we would be without Him and His goodness that is given to us as we move into this holiday known as Easter. Uh, Easter is all about celebration. Lent is about reflection of who God is and what He w is doing. It's kind of like we're going from the desert into the promised land. And too often today, I think 
think people who claim to be Christians actually don't live with God's goodness in the forefront of our minds. We don't really know how to handle things that come our way, and so we tend to live in the middle of these things called platitudes or cliches, things that we just say, and that's what we're going to really deal with today. Sometimes people think if you just have a positive mental view or something like that, then everything's got to work out the way that we want. But life doesn't work out that way no matter how hard we try. And yet when people think that God isn't doing what they want them to do, they get a disillusion with God when they themselves have put themselves in the place of God. Like I know a lot of people who say, oh, I no longer believe in Jesus because Jesus they didn't approve of what I'm doing or my life didn't turn out the way I wanted. And even some cases, they read the book of Job and didn't understand what in the world was happening. As a matter of fact, I have a friend who was talking to me about a week and a half ago about Element going through the book of Job. And he said, you are the weirdest church in the world. And I said, I know. But why do you say that? And and he said, well, because most people, they go through the book of Job, they skip all those really hard things in Job 1 and Job 2. He goes, you guys start the first week and just step into it. Providence of God, suffering in the world, all these things going on. He goes, that's just weird. And I said, "Uh, well, thanks. But I want people to know the whole counsel of what's actually in God's word so we can understand God better. You know, when I was writing this message, a friend of mine and I, we went to a wedding together. And it's kind of interesting that one of the bridesmaids at the wedding, she was talking to us and she goes, yeah, yeah, I don't think I need to get married like the bride and groom because it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't matter. And yet there's a lot of Christians who actually live that way in our lives. We think that what God calls us to is secondary to our own happiness and fulfillment. And sometimes we don't want to go through these sometimes difficult times that God takes us through in our lives in order to call us to himself so we'd understand what it means to walk in his ways. A lot of times we make up a theology of who we think God has to be. And when that falls apart, we reject God, even though what we're rejecting is really our own man-made things of who we think God has to be, as if that was actually was God. And listen to me, I, I say this a lot, but we do not seem to hear it that often. But there is a God and he is not us. As one writer says that I really like, he says, there's really a big difference between us and God. Well, more than one, but he says, God is never once thought he was us, which is totally true because we always think we are, we are him. Now, I say this to you because in Job, you're going to get a very clear picture of who God is. And I want you to see that because I love you. And many times God will allow suffering and hard times into our lives in order to grow us into the people he intends for us to be. And we tend to be people who stumble around in the midst of that. But God is so patient with us and he is so kind with us as he draws us back to himself. And again, this is where we're going to go with the book, you know, Job's Suffering. And today, look at those ideas of different platitudes in it. It's going to take a little bit to get there. Uh, Open to Job chapter 2 if you have a Bible. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of where we are before we get there. Now, the book of Job starts by telling us in Job 1.1 that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. When you hear the word blameless, that doesn't mean perfect. It means that Job's a guy who's trying to do the right things in the right ways. And that word upright is how he refers to people around him. He goes to people who are around him and, and lives his life in a way with integrity with those who are around him. But you see Job being such a good guy, his life still goes from perceived good, lots of earthly blessings, to horrific bad as he loses his wealth, his health, his children. And when suffering comes, there's this temptation to curse God. And this is really the question in the book. Where are 
are our hearts aligned? Who are we actually following and loving with our lives? Uh, this is what the accuser, who the Satan in the book of Job, this is what he wants Job to do is, is curse God, to run away from God. That's what Job's wife eventually does. And so this is what you see. Three main things as we begin. First off, in Job 1.11, the accuser says to God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, God doesn't do that, but he does allow the accuser to do that. And what does Job do? Job says, bless be the name of the Lord, no matter what comes into my life, which means the accuser doesn't know everything. He doesn't know our thoughts and he doesn't know the future. The second thing is in Job 2.4, the accuser then says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Again, God doesn't do that, but he allows the accuser to do that. And in the end, Job will, Job will say, you know, again, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to accept everything God places into my hands. The third thing you see, though, is that Job's wife had had enough. She was just done. In Job 2.9, she looks at Job and she says, do you hold still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, that, that's a very encouraging woman right there. How does Job respond to her? Job 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil or disaster? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And again, I told you, knowing Job's character, this in the Hebrew could actually be written in a way that's very tender. You're speaking as one of the foolish women, but you're not one of them. I understand you're going through a lot of stuff right now, but this is not in your character. And the thing is, when Christians, when we don't have a proper view of who God is, we tend to ask a lot, God, why did you let this happen? And we stop asking the more important question of, God, what do you want me to learn in the midst of this? What do you want me to learn as I go through these hard things? The suffering Christian will usually go through asking questions at first in faith, but then when it goes on too long, we start to ask those questions in anger. And many times we think that when we experience pain that God doesn't care, that God's not there, that God's not all-powerful, he doesn't exist at all. Uh, Some people, I said all the way back in week one, kind of see it like yin and yang and good and evil. you got God and the devil, and there are these hugely powerful forces, and they're fighting against one another, and we don't know who's going to win, but that's not how it is. God is providential. God is sovereign. Nothing can stand up to him. He is in total charge. But then why does he allow it? And I told you in week one, Tim Keller says this, God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. He only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. And, and what is the accuser trying to get Job to do? Curse God, because he wants Job exposed as a fraud. He wants Job to be discredited in this. But what is God going to do? He's going to show the accuser that he doesn't know everything, and that Job, in the end, is someone that God loves, and that God's going to come back into his life and raise Job back up. Job is going to use all of this to grow not just Job's faith, but 3,500 years later, our faith as well. Now, when we talk about suffering and calamity, I am not just talking about what happened in Job's life. I am also talking our own lives, uh, this season of COVID that, that's going on. I'm talking about just loss and pain and uncertainty. Um, talking about the normal and the mundane things of our lives, maybe even the fight with the spouse or the fight with the friend or a job that you wanted and you didn't get or a job that you had and, and you lost. It can be so many things. So please just don't think I'm talking about this catastrophic things in Job's life. Today we're getting to the point where we talk about Job's three friends, and they show up to encourage him. And for a little bit, they will do that brilliantly with their silence, but then they start speaking and just blow, blow it all. And they will say some things that Christians still say today, certain platitudes. And again, we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about these friends, because the majority of the book of Job is about Job and his friends asking the question, why? 
But there's another question we can ask, and that is, why is the book of Job so long? And I like what one writer said. This is my paraphrase. Maybe the book is so long because there are no easy answers to the question of suffering. And that's true. I'd also add a caveat in that, that maybe we're also just a little bit slow. Uh, So Job's friends show up at the end of Job 2, Job 2, verse 11. That's where we are. says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, this disaster that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. So they're from different parts of the world at that time. They're all friends, so they get a hold of each other, and let's go visit Job. So they do that together. Verse 12. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Job is covered in boils, in ash. He's ripped his clothes. He shaved his hair off his head. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So again, they hear about this from their different areas. They contact each other. Let's go see Job together. And they do that together. And they cry with Job. Instead of offering words to begin with, they just offer their silence. They sit there with him in his discomfort. And the silence that they gave was amazing and beautiful and full of grace. The Hebrew, it actually uses this word called nud or nude to express this type of suffering where they mourn with him. And this, this nude, this term, it's like, uh, have you ever seen someone in a car accident and they're sitting on the side of the road after it and they're just kind of, just kind of shaking because of the trauma? That's what it kind of refers to, this shaking back and forth. They don't really know what to do. Like you see or hear about a catastrophe, but when you get it, see it face to face, it's completely different. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Imagine sitting in silence with someone for seven days and seven nights. This powerful act became a later part of Jewish life. As a matter of fact, when I do funerals, a lot of times I will talk about this, because the Jews will speak of what is called sitting Sheba or sitting sevens. Well, they will come and mourn with someone over the course of a week. And I think this is where Paul gets what he says in Romans twelve fifteen. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He doesn't say give them an explanation. He doesn't say try and solve all their problems with platitudes. He says you just weep. And when the seven days are up, Job is now going to speak again. And it's not going to be the Job, verse, the Job of 121. Oh, the Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not going to be Job 10. Shall we receive good from God and not boils? That would have been a short book. This is where he goes. Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. That's where he goes. Because Job now has been completely torn down. His heart is in turmoil, and he curses the day that he was born. And Job will now go on to unleash his anguish. Job 3, verse 3. Let the day on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived, uh, let that day perish, sorry. On which I was born in the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let not re- rejoice... Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. That is the night that his parents got together in love and conceived Job. Saying a lot about his parents' nights together, I guess. Okay, Uh, verse 8. Let those who curse it curse the day. Meaning let those who curse days curse that day. That's how the NIV actually says it. And in all this, Job doesn't sin against God with his lips. He doesn't call God evil. He doesn't question him in that way. But Job turns it inward. He expresses it inwardly in his pain. 
And he complains. And when he does that, that's when his friends feel like, okay, now we're here. Now I can set Job straight. Now, and then they start talking. Before I get to the first guy and what he says, here's my question for you today. This is the question. How do you respond to other people in pain? Do you feel the need to say words and stop, start talking? Or are you okay just being silent? How do you respond to other people around you who are in pain? That's, that's my question. Now, when you get to the first guy here, his name is Eliphaz the Temanite. I'm going to give you a little background on him because it's interesting, I think, of how the Hebrews would have understood this. The word Temanite probably indicates that he was an uh, Edomite, a member of, say, the Palestinian people that descended from this line called Esau. Now, if you know anything about the Hebrew faith, you have God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Well, Esau is Jacob's older brother. And the way the story kind of goes is that when Jacob is born, he's the second born. But God says, I am going to give the firstborn blessing to Jacob. Jacob doesn't really trust God. So in the end, he tricks his older, stronger, more masculine, redheaded, hairy brother into the birthright. And that all of a sudden makes Esau want to kill Jacob. And so Jacob runs away in fear. What God will do over the next decades is work in Jacob's life to bring him to a place where he becomes a man that wants to love and serve and worship God. And when that happens, God will change Jacob's name to Israel, which is where you get the name of the country, Israel. Jacob will have 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those is Judah, through which Jesus eventually comes. But in Genesis 36, what it does is it actually recounts Esau's line, Jacob's older brother. And in Genesis 36, 12, we read this line, Timnah was a concubine, and I was going to tell you that's not farm equipment, that's like a living girlfriend you're not married to. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. That's a short line, but it's really subtle in this because the Amalekites become one of Israel's worst enemies. Uh, Rabbis and Jewish legends teach that at one point, Timnah was in love with Jacob, but Jacob spurns her, wants nothing to do with her, and she goes off, and then she becomes the concubine of Jacob's nephew. She bores children, and then she teaches those children to hate and despise Jacob. Now you fast forward a couple hundred years, God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these Amalekites start falling on and trying to kill the people of Israel over and over and over. The Amalekites' relentless persecution of the Jews caused a lot of suffering. Actually, it brought about in later rabbinic tradition that they imagined every subsequent enemy of the Jewish people came in some way from Amalekites. The Amalekites as a people embodied all of Israel's injuries that were real and poetic both. Uh, If you go to the book of Esther, the entire book of Esther is actually centered around this guy named Haman, who was a descendant of this uh, king named Agag, who was an Amalekite king. And he wants to destroy all the Jews, because there's a Jew named named Mordecai, who had an ancestor, King Saul, who beat up Haman's great-great-granddaddy. It all just goes around in circles. So a Hebrew person, knowing their history and this story, would hear Eliphaz the Tamanite, and it would be loaded with meaning. And what they would see is that there is actually a child child of Esau, or descendant of Esau, who was friends with someone who followed the God of Israel. But what are the things that they say? Well, this Amalekite person is someone who spouts a whole lot of things that aren't actually even true, and in the end are almost going to destroy this person who wants to follow the God of Israel. Because Eliphaz's sympathy for Job quickly turns to accusations and fuzzy theology and a whole lot of platitudes. And I want to focus on those platitudes today because the other friends are going to talk about Job Job's innocence and his morality and and all these things. Eliphaz is going to speak three times. He'll speak in Job chapter 4 and chapter 5, Job chapter 14 and chapter chapter 15 and 16, and Job chapter 22. 
I'm going to condense it all because if I didn't, we never get through this in eight weeks. But here's an example. He says, Job chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, is not your fear of God your confidence? Is that where our confidence comes from, our fear of God? No, it's the love of God and the grace of God. And the integrity or the innocence of your ways, your hope. Is my own innocence and my own morality my hope? No, it's not. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? These are all platitudes. Are you suffering? Have confidence in God. Oh, you had trouble? Well, the innocent never get cut off. Your own good deeds should be your reward. We still hear things like this today. And I'm not saying that everything Eliphaz says is wrong, but sometimes they're just not helpful in a given situation. When someone is going through something hard, cliches and platitudes do not help. What they do is they help the person who's saying them feel like they're getting something out so they can, oh, I'll help you, but we're really just trying to help ourselves because we feel uncomfortable. I have never heard anybody say, after hearing a cliche or a platitude, oh yeah, now I feel better. I never hear anybody say that at all. But it usually, again, we're anxious because we we don't know what to say to this person who's suffering. And so we say these things to make ourselves better. And maybe the other person will stop talking about their pain. And what that tells us is platitudes are selfish. And occasionally they are also self-righteous so that we can feel better. Now, there are Christian and non-Christian platitudes. Uh, sometimes they overlap in some places. Let me give you some non-Christian platitudes. So how about this? Uh, everything always works out in the end. Now, as believers in Jesus, we believe that as well, right? God is going to work all things out in the end. But when people say that, we think that's to our end, to our good, to what, to what we want, to what we want. Uh, but not everything always works out the way that we want it to. Think of the martyrs in the New Testament. They all got killed. How about this? Uh, time heals all wounds. Well, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just pushes it farther away and puts the wound even deeper and more painful. How about this? It doesn't matter if you win or lose, only that you try. Tell that to the 49ers every year. <laughs> okay, uh, tomorrow is another day. Yes, okay, it is. It could be worse. That is never helpful, okay? <laughs> it could be worse. Uh, take the lemons and make lemonades. I am allergic to lemons, and so this is not helpful at all. Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So what should it be paved with? You know, is the road to heaven paved with bad intentions? I mean, what does that even mean? But we also do this with the Bible and Christianity and certain things that we say in these platitudes. So I'm going to give you some things that you've probably heard before, and I want these to be practical so we think through what we're actually saying when we're not speaking about the gospel. We're just saying platitudes that are out there. So here we go. Uh, God will never give you more than you can handle. I'm sure a lot of us have actually heard that. Now, I do believe that God has more faith in us than we have in ourselves, but this idea that God's never going to give us more than we can handle, that is not biblical. Uh, people will quote 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When we say that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, that right there is a corruption of God's word. 1 Corinthians 10 is about temptation. God has enabled us to step out of temptation and to trust him in the temptations that we had. But God is constantly putting more than we can handle into our lives so that we would trust him and him alone. And if we ever think this platitude is true, it can drive us to despair because we think we're just not strong enough. We're not walking with God close enough that we can't handle all of these things on our own. And it will lead people to being mad at God and lead people to question God's good salvation because they encounter something that they can't handle. Everything in our lives are things that we can't handle, which kind of goes into this one. People say, God helps those who help themselves. Now, that's dumb because it's not in the Bible. But, you know, they asked a group of Christians this question, is this in the Bible? 85% of Christians thinks that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. 
and it's not. The phrase goes back to ancient Greek philosophy, and then it was later popularized, most likely, by Benjamin Franklin. And FYI, he's not Jesus, in case you were wondering. Either way, it's not biblical, because the Bible is clear that God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. God helps those who are incapable, which, in this case, now ends up being Job himself. Now, I believe that God does want us to walk with him in relationship, to do what we can in his strength and power and not our own. And figuring out how we do that is part of this Christian journey. But God comes in and he helps those who cannot help themselves. And then this goes into this next one, which is kind of goes back to that other one where uh, everything works out in the end. Everything happens for a reason. Now, we say that to one another, and and in the end, I think God can bring good out of everything, but we have to understand that God has taken the universe, and he's created certain laws in the universe. This is why science works, because God created things, and so it kind of runs a little bit on its own in a lot of ways. Now, we have sinned in the middle of it, and we brought a whole lot of suffering in, in the middle of it, but if we say things like, oh, everything happens for a reason, well, I didn't run a drill through my finger, which happens a lot, you know, I have no band-aids today, but there you go. You know, I don't do that for some higher cosmic purpose. Sometimes people get cancer or a loved one dies in a car accident or you don't get the job you want or your child gets sick. There doesn't have to be a higher cosmic reason for that. And I'm not saying that God can't and won't bring good out of those things because he definitely will. He will use all the tragedies and all the events in our lives, but not everything has to have a cosmic reason. God does not have to be the reason that your car got keyed. I I was reading uh, this news story this week where there was a judge back east Goes into their city administrator and he says, hey, I want to get on our city insurance. And the city administrator says, judges aren't eligible for our insurance. And he goes, but I want to get on it. And the city administrator says, sorry. So the judge goes out and he keys the city administrator's car on camera. Uh, He also got fired, which is also funny, funny as well. But that's not some higher cosmic reason. Maybe your car gets keyed in in your neighborhood. Maybe it just means that some teenagers need a spanking or something. God is incapable of doing one thing, and that is violating his character. He is incapable of doing evil. And there can be, and I believe there ultimately will be, a redeeming purpose for everything that we go through in our lives, all the pain and all the suffering. But we don't always have to look for a reason behind the thing that's happening. We need to look toward is that God is faithful to his promises, and God will bring about the things that he intends. And in the end, again, he will redeem all things. And so for now, when bad stuff happens, we look for ways and trust that God can use those for good. And this goes into the next one that we say sometimes, which is let go and let God. I don't even know what that means half the time. Is there a magic elixir I can take and swallow down that magically makes me forget all my stuff and, you know, and then just let God do it? Again, we are meant to be a people who are in a relationship with God. We walk with him in his strength. And yes, God does work in and through us in the midst of our problems and pain. And yes, we're supposed to allow God to work and we don't have to fix everything on our own strength. But we're also not passive recipients while God just gives us all of our wishes. We are a people who are meant to walk with him. The idea is we do things in God's power, in his strength. Not that God does it for us. We do it with him, walking together. And then this next one is something we tend to say a lot too, which is just count your blessings. Now, Job kind of says something like this. He says, shall we receive good from God and and not boils? But behind this idea, a lot of times we say this to one another simply because we want people to stop talking about their pain. We want to say, oh, think of all the good things. Stop thinking about the bad things. Guys, it is okay 
to mourn the things that we have lost. God even says this to Job. Uh, A couple years ago, there's this fire up north, destroyed this entire town. And a lot of times I heard people say this about that. Oh, well, they should just count their blessings. They're still alive. Like it's not okay for them to mourn the stuff that they lost. It's okay to mourn those things. But ultimately, on the other side, we want to come to a place where we realize what actually does last and what actually does matter. And that is the eternalness of God's relationship with us. So, yes, we can mourn the things that we lost. You know, just counting our blessings is not meant to be a way that says just forget everything you're going through. Everything that we go through in our lives can bring us closer to who Christ is. And that's what we need to remember and see. And platitudes don't help. And I want to hit one more because it's not really a platitude, but it's kind of something we say sometimes. And sometimes we will say to one another, oh, I'll pray for you. You're in my prayers and people are in the midst of suffering. And I wanted to hit that because sometimes we don't think about what we're saying. Sometimes we say that just trying to get out of the conversation and never intending to pray for someone else. Because if you say that, have you actually gone away and prayed not just once, but consistently for another person? And if we really do mean it, why not stop right there and pray for them right there? And when we go away, we can say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And this is a great thing to say to someone who is hurting. But if you don't mean it and you're trying to walk away, it reduces the impact because it simply becomes like a goodbye instead of like a true expression of love and compassion. One of the things that we want the book of Job to do for us is to put us into a rhythm where we're walking with one another and walking with God himself, that it draws us to be the people that he intends for us to be, that it would begin to grow us up past all the easy cliches and into a real relationship with one another and God himself. And all these platitudes are what Eliphaz and Job's friends start to throw at Job. And it really isn't until Job's friends start talking that you'll see Job lose it even more in the book. And he will get to the point where he gets so confused that he will say to God, I demand an answer from you. And the crazy thing is for Job, God is actually going to show up, but it's not like Job thought. And I think sometimes when we complain about what God is doing and by allowing us sometimes to go through hard stuff, we fail to realize that God actually did speak into our pain and loss in the person of Jesus Christ. I think just like Job will eventually experience in a way that he didn't expect God showing up, which you'll have to come back in a few weeks to to see that. But just like Job experienced that, God also comes to us in Christ in ways that no one in the world ever expected, that God steps into our pain. He allows us to lay our hands on him and kill him, and Jesus dies in our place for our sins. In Jesus, God came to take on our pain and restore us to him. John Stott once wrote this. He said, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Because God is not immune to the pain. God steps into it and walks through it with us. See, Eliphaz is an example of someone who starts to spew out things while not actually living in the wisdom that God calls us to. He doesn't really want to suffer for a long term with Job. He doesn't want to step into those places. So he throws out all these platitudes. But I'll tell you, Eliphaz was wrong. Guys, not everything your friends say is true or right, no matter how convinced they are or how passionate they are about it. And Job's life is a clear example that sometimes the innocent suffer, but God can and does use all of that suffering for his divine plan to bring about growth and strength in all of us, uh, to change us and others for the glory of God and our good and our joy. And if I would get you guys to do something this week as you walk through your Lent journey guides and answer the questions and think about these things, let us reflect on becoming a people who speak the truth of grace while we do not diminish who God is in his person. 
You know, we must first be a people when we do that who remember who God is and what he has done. This is why we are always talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are always trying to bring people back to the understanding of what God did to rescue us because it gets our focus off of us and onto him. And if our focus was on him in the midst of other people's suffering, we might have a better way to enter into those things with people. This is one of the reasons every week we try to get you guys to come to a place where we remember what God did in communion, where you take a piece of bread or a cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in wine or grape juice or drink wine and grape juice. That reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me because God came to rescue us in the person of Christ. The gospel is understanding that God stepped into our pain. God stepped into the brokenness that we bought. God stepped into exactly where we are to rescue and save us. And we worship him because of that. Now, what I'm going to do for the first time in a really long time is I'm going to invite the band actually to come up. And as they do, maybe you're in a place today where you are wondering about, you know, the places you are, maybe the platitudes that have been said to you, the cliches that you said. Maybe you feel like, man, have I ever actually lived in the grace and the depth of who God is? Or have I only lived in the place of platitudes? Well, if you want someone to pray with you through that and talk through that, they would love to pray and talk with you through that. You know, at Element, we say this thing all the time. We say, Jesus loves you. And I know at times it sounds like a platitude, but it's not. It's not. That's the reality that we all must live in. And I know when you just hear it out of the blue, when you're suffering in in something, it doesn't sound like that. But I got to tell you, I say that because it's the reality of our lives. Jesus loves us, and that's what brings about the good news of the gospel. God loved us so much that he rescued us. And we need to be a people who live in that grace and that goodness so we don't have to feel uncomfortable and say weird, bizarre things. We can simply trust who God is as he leads us in every given situation. Uh, If you would like to give, we believe that our God is a generous God to us and has given so much to us. So we are simply a giving people. And if you would like to, you can do that online. You can mail things if you're ever here. You can throw it in an offering box next to one of the doors. But I'd also encourage you to take the Lent Journey Guides this week and start to think through those things of how do we see God as he truly is? How do we trust him for the things that he has actually said, no matter what we're going through, even still in the midst of COVID? How do we be a people that we trust him with each step that we take as we walk through those questions with one another. Ask one, one another some of those daily questions, or if you flick to the end of it, there'll be uh, family or gospel community questions you can ask to one another. Let's start talking about these things and being real and honest about what we're going through and what we're feeling and what, we th- what we're thinking so we can steer each other back to the good news of the gospel of God's rescue of us. Let us be those people who understand God's great goodness over us and what he has called us to in the world. Let us not be Eliphaz. Let us be true and real people who speak God's goodness in the world around us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take us and move us to be a people who are honest, a people who are honest about the places we've been and the places that we are going, honest about the suffering that is around us and all the things that are uncomfortable. Have us be a people who understand if we read it on a bumper sticker, it's probably not the greatest theology in the world. (laughs) Have us be those who trust you for the truth that you have revealed. That we would be the same people who come into a church to worship you, be the same people that would be out there working our jobs, how we're treating our families, how we're doing everything so that our lives have more depth than just platitudes. 
that our lives would live in the great grace that we have first received from you. That we would worship you as our only true God. That we would understand the depth of your love for us in the gospel. And that we in turn would live that out in the world around us, in lives that do reflect that goodness. That we would be your ambassadors. And that we would show everyone the hope that is found only in you. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.